0: As you can see this morning, friends, we kick off a series entitled Culture Shift. Jesus certainly shifted a whole lot of cultures, and we're still seeing that at work today in your life and in my life. Now, we're also in the season of Lent, which is the 40 day period, not counting Sundays, that leads up to Easter. The 40 days of Lent commemorate and remember and focus on the 40 days of temptation that Jesus experienced in the wilderness just before his public ministry started. Lent is a time of prayer. It's a time of reflection. And in the early church, people who had made that decision to follow Jesus, they would spend the season of Lent as a way to understand, to learn more about what it meant to be a part of the Christian community, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. They would go through these studies, and they would go through this prayer, And then on Easter Sunday, they would be baptized, and that would symbolize them now fully embracing the grace of Jesus. Now, during Lent, many Christians may give up something, maybe give up chocolate or or Starbucks, or, or in many denominations, they actually give up eating meat. For Lent, That's important to know because I'm going to share something else with you that maybe some folks didn't know. The, the Lent season, okay, it kicks off with Ash Wednesday. We, we had that about a week and a half ago. And Lent culminates with Easter Sunday. Now, many people don't realize that the celebration of Mardi Gras is tied to the season of Lent. The words Mardi Gras in French are what? Fat Tuesday. Fat Tuesday is the day before Ash Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent. Why? Because on Ash Wednesday, it kicks off the season of Lent. And many Christians, especially through the ages, gave up on eating like huge meals. Maybe they gave up eating meat for Lent. And so on Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, people would just kind of gorge themselves and have this big meal knowing that they couldn't have it for another 40 days or so. So Mardi Gras refers to Fat Tuesday, the day before Lent. Mardi Gras also is kind of a season. It starts on January sixth. That's a day in the Christian church that we refer to as epiphany. Epiphany, it's a word that means an amazing discovery. And we talk about the epiphany in the Christian church because that's the day, January 6th, in which we remember the magi or the, uh, the, the wise men as they went to visit Jesus and his family. So you've got Mardi Gras on, on one part of Lent. You've got uh, the season of Mardi Gras really starting on uh, epiphany in, in January 6th. And so everything kind of moves forward. So it's kind of interesting that we talk about a culture shift, and, and many of the things in our culture that we hold dear during this time of year, whether it's secular or whether it's uh, spiritual, that they're kind of linked together in many ways. And a lot of people again, don't realize that, that Mardi Gras or Fat Tuesday that those are related to the season. Of Lent. Okay, with that said, we talk about the culture shift that Jesus leads. Doing this culture shift means that maybe we look at things a little bit differently. Jesus certainly had a way of doing that in his teaching and his preaching and with his examples. He shattered so many comfort zones, and the truth is he still does that here and now. Uh, What may look white is really black. What looks like down is, is really up. What looks one way is really another way. But first, let me take you back 13 years... Catherine and I were about to celebrate our one-year wedding anniversary. Now, several months earlier, we had taken a trip down to Orlando. I went to seminary in Orlando, served a church down there. So I took Catherine down to meet a lot of my old friends and see my old stomping grounds. And we went to a farmer's market outside of Orlando on a, a beautiful Saturday morning. And they had all these vendors selling all of this really good stuff. And we bought some kettle corn. This was like the best kettle corn of all time. I mean, it was just heavenly. It was just really good stuff. And so we bought like eight bags of it, brought it home with us, and that lasted like six hours or so. But it was these big bags, kind of like the same material that you'd find like is a is a, a like a grocery bag or even a garbage bag, something like that. And so for our first year anniversary, knowing that she loved that kettle corn so much, I ordered some online. It came delivered to our house about four days before our anniversary. Now, I had to hide it somewhere because I wanted to surprise her on her actual anniversary, and so I had to find a place to put this kettle corn where my wife would never, ever see it. I picked the perfect location, somewhere she would never look, somewhere that no one would ever find it, in the oven. Okay, so I had the kettle corn in the oven for a long time. Okay, on the day of our actual anniversary, she's a, a school counselor. She, she came home, and I said, I've got really some, some special things in store for us on this anniversary. And we started watching a movie. And at the, at the, towards the end of the movie, I was going to get up. This was my grand plan. I was going to go get the kettle corn out of the oven, give it to her. Life would be great. Okay, it didn't quite turn out that way. Here's what happened. We're watching the movie, and all of a sudden, I smell something that's burning. I guess you guys can kind of figure out where I'm going. Turns out, Catherine, she wanted to bake my favorite cookies for our anniversary. And so she preheated the oven to 350 after like five or six minutes you could start to smell the smoke that was just billowing out of the oven true story I went and I pulled open the oven there were flames in the oven I've never seen that before it was creepy and it was freaky and and, and it was disappointing because now she didn't get her kettle corn it was all burned together and just kind of a kind of a, a strange thing and as a result we didn't get to uh, to enjoy it at least in that way sometimes things that are true are things that we don't expect sometimes we expect something and what we find is totally different that's what happens in a culture shift Okay, in my, my, my marriage, on my wedding anniversary I wanted to do something that looked like this but instead things turned out like this Jesus often initiates things that we think are going to go this way but in turn God takes us that way So, with that said, I want to look at a passage of Scripture in just a couple of moments, okay? And we're we're talking about culture shift. What we're going to do is we're going to take a look each week at a certain example or an illustration or a teaching or a preaching that, that Jesus gives us during the final week of his life ...before the crucifixion, okay? He enters uh, triumphantly, I should add, into Jerusalem, okay, the royal city, the big city of that day and age. And he spent a week before he eventually was crucified, and then, of course, he was resurrected. So, Jesus was in Jerusalem. He was there with his disciples for the Passover meal, the Passover feast... All devout Jews from all over the world would converge on Jerusalem to take part in this Passover feast. Now, word traveled quickly that Jesus was going to be here. People were in awe of his teachings and of his miracles. And other people thought that, you know, maybe this Jesus guy, maybe he could be the Messiah. We've been praying for for God's Messiah for for hundreds of years. The the, the one, the Son of God that's going to be sent into this world to, to fight off the oppression. In their eyes, it was the oppression of the Roman Empire. That's what they were anticipating. That's what they were longing for. It didn't quite turn out that way until later on you saw kind of a shift in their thinking as well. But many of the religious leaders of that day and age, they also had heard of Jesus. And they wanted to go see what he had to say, to, to see how he, he taught and how he would preach. Because truthfully, they were a little bit frustrated with him. They thought that he was making a mockery out of a lot of their religious institutions and traditions. Uh, they also didn't like the fact that he had really gained a, a really big following and so these uh, religious leaders eventually would do things that led to the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus so with that said Okay, that's the the tumultuous time in which this story takes place. We're going to go to the 12th chapter of Mark. Mark does a really detailed account. About 40% of the book of Mark focuses on the last week of Jesus' earthly life before, like I said, the crucifixion. Okay, Mark 12, verse 28, 29, 30, and 31. Here we go. One of the teachers of the law came and he heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer... He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second most important commandment is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, earlier in the day, these religious leaders had gathered to to hear Jesus, to see Jesus, and they tried their best to discredit Jesus and his teachings and his reputation and his ministry. They would focus on asking these really deep theological questions to Jesus, knowing that if he went one way with his answer, he was going to tick off those people. If he went this way with his response, he would anger those people over there. And yet Jesus, just in his brilliance and the power and the movement of the Holy Spirit, he gave them answers that that they weren't expecting, Uh, answers that, that really cut off any opportunity they had to blame him or to accuse him or to condemn him time and time again. Jesus' response would just blow everything out of the water. Now, in the scriptures, we often hear about the Pharisees or the Sadducees. They were pretty well regarded in that day, religious and even political leaders. They were the ones who were fairly wealthy. They were the the movers and shakers in that day and time. At times, they could be arrogant. They could be self-righteous. They could be condemning. And so, therefore, in the New Testament, when generally we hear or read about Pharisees or Sadducees, It's cast in a negative light, okay? They're just not seen as these wonderful agents of God that maybe they thought that they were. But with that said, in our story this morning, we do hear from a Pharisee who who honestly is not the way that they're often cast. This guy is asking a really good question. Why? Because he really does see that Jesus speaks as one with godly authority, this, this Pharisee, this religious leader, truly did want to know how Jesus would answer that question. He could see the godly wisdom in Jesus that he had been looking for. So, ask the question. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, let me let me give you a little bit of a backstory too, and then we're gonna we're gonna move along, okay? To understand the basis of the question, okay, we have to know a little bit about their culture. The the Jewish scriptures. They had the Ten Commandments. Okay, most of us aren't familiar with those. But the Jewish leaders, they also used the Ten Commandments as the basis for a lot of other commandments, more specific type of things. Uh, For example, the Jewish rabbis would teach that there are 613 specific commandments to the Jewish law. And all of these commandments are not going to be weighed equally. Some were, were kind of heavy and really intense. Some were a little bit light and soft and not quite as big of a deal as these other ones. And Jewish people, in many cases, especially with your rabbi, they, they would debate and they would converse, trying to figure out okay, this commandment is more important than that one, but this is more important than that one, this is bigger than that one, and which is the biggest and, and which is the greatest of all. That's what Jesus is to ask. And how does Jesus respond? He actually gives us two answers, two commandments. Pick it up again at verse 29. The most important one, Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's actually part of a Jewish prayer. I'll share more about that in a second. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength and then he gives them a second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So not only does, does Jesus give us the most important commandment okay, about loving God, but also a really close number two, which is loving our neighbors as ourselves. And his response came, interestingly enough, not from the Ten Commandments, not even from, from maybe some Jewish traditions or cultural norms, but rather he picked something that, that came about hundreds and hundreds of years earlier in the writings of Moses. Okay, There was a, a Jewish prayer that, that all devout Jews would, would publicly proclaim every morning and then every night before they went to bed. And this is one of them. Love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and all your strength. And so Jesus went along with this this Jewish prayer because everybody knew that. Everybody would be familiar with those words. To the Jewish people, these these four things, okay, the the mind and the body and the soul, all of these had to do with their description of the total person, the total package. In other words, for you, all the followers of God, okay, four things that we want to focus on and use these things to honor and to glorify God, okay, all of our decisions, all of our desires, all of our thoughts, all of our actions. In other words, love God with everything you are, with everything you hope to be. Now, the second commandment, it actually comes out from, again, some Jewish scripture, this one in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus, and it simply says, short and sweet, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, people in that day and age, when they heard jesus say this they 're familiar with that they would know okay that's, yeah, that that 's that thing that that my grandma would teach me you know, all, all you know as grown up as, as a young Jewish boy in the outskirts of Jerusalem or Galilee or Nazareth or wherever it may have been, and so the two commandments really summarize the Ten Commandments you could say okay love God okay that, that really covers maybe the first four of the Ten Commandments, and then uh, love your neighbor as yourself. That's like the second, you know, numbers five through ten of the commandments. And so Jesus was giving us a great answer that covered all these different things that maybe folks hadn't quite thought of before, okay? Instead of having to remember 613 different commandments, different regulations, different Jewish law, different commandments, Jesus boils it down into these two verses, love God, love people. Jesus is essentially telling us that if you you follow this commandment to love God, you follow this uh, commandment over here to, to love people, everything else falls into place. You don't have to memorize 611 other commandments because everything will fall into place. He's also stressing the fact that love, okay, love is not a feeling. When I do weddings, I always say that to, to couples, that, that love is not a feeling. Okay? There might be times you don't feel like loving your spouse or your family or your coworkers or whatever. Love is not a feeling. Love is a verb. Something about which you have to be deliberate and intentional about living out. So on the surface, Jesus' response really wasn't that countercultural. It wasn't seen seen as, as just radical or revolutionary after all these two commandments came from phrases or sayings or scripture that all of the people already knew. But to put them together like that was a really big deal. They were focused on having to obey and follow and remember all of these tedious 613 commandments. And Jesus is saying, you know what, it all boils down to two. You focus on the two, everything else is going to work out great. That means showing love to people who are different. That means showing love to people whom you may not like. Showing love to those folks over there whom you may not know. It means showing love, being deliberate and intentional about loving God, and we will love God. God is saying, love your neighbor as yourself. That, that's pretty radical stuff in the sense that in, all, in our, our culture today, I'm not, I'm not sure how often we remember that. We have a lot of other rationale, a lot of maybe even excuses as to why we don't do that. Uh, We're in an uh, election cycle, and it's a very divisive era for for some people. They may not necessarily be voting for the candidate they like the most. They might, in many cases, be voting for someone they dislike the least. Uh, That's, in our culture, a lot of uh, division, a lot of disunity. We tend to make one candidate out to be the bad guy, and one's the good guy, and if you follow this person over here, you're a bad guy, because I'm following this person over here, good or bad, based on our own opinions and our own preconceived notions. Uh, Maybe we watch one uh, one news program, because it's uh, in line with what we believe. We don't want to watch one over there, because they have a different agenda, and people over there, they don't like what I'm doing, it's a different agenda. And so all of this disunity that's coming up, we, we shun, and maybe we criticize those who are not like us so when we talk about loving our neighbor as yourself this is pretty radical stuff in the day and age in which we find ourselves right now even in the church there are certainly some hot button issues about which there's a lot of disagreement in many cases because of the actions there's a lot of hurt maybe even a lot of distrust but instead of seeing others as, as, as beloved creations of God, we often look at them and say, you know what, you're, you're not like me. I, I don't quite understand what you think or what you hope or what you do. And so, therefore, we're, we're just kind of different. And that's something that, that I think breaks the heart of God. How are we truly loving God with all that we are, all that we have, all that we hope to be, and yet we neglect to love those around us? That, that, that's pretty Pretty interesting stuff, okay? Jesus said also later in his ministry, when or actually it before this, but it was in reference to this story. Somebody asked Jesus, okay, love our neighbors as ourselves. Yeah, I get that. Who are our neighbors? And Jesus went into a really elegant, uh, just a, a very deep-rooted parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The whole purpose of the parable of the Good Samaritan is to focus on the question Who is our neighbor? And so Jesus says, your neighbor is that person over there. Uh, Your neighbor is that guy over there. Your neighbor is anyone whom you encounter. Your neighbor is anyone around you. That was powerful stuff because in many cases, people looked at their neighbor as, well, they had to be a fellow Jew. or, Or they had to be a fellow Jewish person in their own community. And so for Jesus to say, your community and your neighbor is that guy over there or that person over there, that was just scandalous in many eyes. That just didn't happen that way. And so, Jesus by his loving your enemy type of mantra is being culturally shifting. He's being revolutionary, and that's pretty powerful stuff. Who exactly is our neighbor? Anyone whom we encounter. Okay, Joe, you know what? Surely I can love my neighbor as myself. I like that person over there, so it's not that hard for me to love him. But don't ask me to love that person over there because I don't really like their lifestyle. I don't know a whole lot about him, and I just want to stay over here. Or sure, Joe, yeah, I can love that person as I love myself because he and I or she and I, we think the same way. But I'm not going to love those people over there. Don't ask me to go over there because I don't agree with, with, with their viewpoints on some things. Or I can love that person over there as I love myself. Yeah, that, that's pretty good. But, but, but those people over there, their, their politics don't jive with mine. And so let me just kind of stay away. They're the bad guys. Loving people who seem lovable is not really that big of a deal, is, is it? Anybody can do that. But Jesus is being radical and revolutionary when he talks about the ways in which we are called to love. Deliberately and intentionally showing love to other folks. We're called to show love to our enemies. Okay, that might mean, as hard as it is to even to fathom, to, to, to show love to your ex-spouse. That means showing love to, to, to people who may have hurt you with their words or their actions. Uh, That means showing love to to that irritating person who just grates on your nerves at work. We're called to show love to those who who aren't like us. That means showing love to to maybe the people whose political ideologies are different than your own. It means showing love to people who have uh, different social agendas than, than maybe we understand. That means showing love to people whom we may not really like that much. That's why this is revolutionary stuff. How are we showing love to those whom we come into contact? Based on the way that that you interact with those around you, can they see that you love God because of the ways in which you love them? Loving your neighbor, neighbor requires us to be bold, again, to be deliberate and intentional about doing things that go against the norm, against the grain of our culture. But when we do, my goodness, things can be amazing. Check this out. When the lunch bell rings at Boca High
1: in Boca Raton, Florida, 3,400 kids spill into the courtyard and split into their social groups. But not everyone gets included. Here at Boca High and at schools across the country, someone always sits alone. It's not a good feeling. Like, you're by yourself, and that's something I, w- I don't want anybody to go through. Dennis Estimon is a Haitian immigrant. When he came here in first grade, he says he felt isolated, especially at lunch. Now he's a senior. He's popular, but he has not forgotten that first-grade feeling. To me, it's like, if we don't try and go make that change, who's going to do it? So, with some friends, Dennis started a club called We Dine Together. We dine
0: Together.
1: We dine. Together. Together. We dine. Together. Their mission is to go into the courtyard at lunchtime to make sure no one is starving for company. Dennis. I, I'm new here. you. are New here? When did you first come here? For new kids especially, the club is a godsend. This is Gabriel. Gabe, how you doing? Since it started last fall, hundreds of friendships have formed, some very unlikely. You're probably meeting kids you never would meet on the football team. Ever. <laughs> Gene Max Merrido actually quit the football team. Gave up all the perks that come with it, just so he could spend more time with this club. I don't I don't mind not getting a football scholarship. This is what I really want to do. Just imagine how different your teenage years would have been. What's the name? If the coolest kids in school all of a sudden decided you mattered. We get to know each other better. It obviously takes a lot of empathy. To devote your lunch period to this yes either that or firsthand experience I went from coming from a school that I always had friends to coming to where I had nobody so club member Allie Seeley transferred two years ago she says with no one to sit next to lunch can be the most excruciating part of the day See, it's really unfair it's honestly an issue meeting someone who actually cares and and listens to what you have to say really makes a difference And that could happen at lunch. That could happen at our club. It's going to make a difference. And not just here at Boca High. I'll be around tomorrow if you want to eat lunch together or something. Dennis and his team are now trying to open chapters of We Dine Together at schools across the country. And maybe when they're done showing kids how to make outsiders feel accepted, they can teach us adults too. Steve Hartman on the road in Boca Raton, Florida.
0: Friends, what would your life look like? What would my life look like if we were just radically sold out to loving our neighbor? How would your life look different? How would my life be different? Some powerful stuff that we saw there. And maybe none of you are called to start a ministry like that. Maybe you are. Uh, But the truth is God has equipped and enabled and empowered you to make a difference. Not under your own strength, not with your own wisdom, but through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. What, What might God be calling you to do? To just drive home the radical message of loving your neighbor. Why? Because we love God. God loves us. And God loves our neighbor. Friends, will you pray with me? Well, dear loving and gracious God, we do thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the ministry and the teaching and the example of Jesus. But Lord, more importantly, we thank you for sending us a Savior. May we always remember that we can't save ourselves. We can't be good enough. There's sin in the world and sin in our lives. We need a Savior, and Lord, you love us so much that you sent one. Heavenly Father, who are those people from whom... We're withholding love. Who are those people whom we just simply refuse to love? Father God, give us a clean heart so that we can see others the way that you do. Someone worthy of mercy and grace and hope. May those around us realize that you love them because of the ways we love them. Gracious God, as we embark on another week, open our hearts and our eyes and our minds so that we can be mindful of living our lives for you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for first loving us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.